when you think about it, memory pretty much defines who we are. Without our memories, we cannot anticipate the future. So memory defines our future as well. And of course, without our memories, we have no past. So who we are is defined by our memories. Memory loss also affects people of all ages. It's not just a 75-year-old grandmother who forgot her lunch date with her daughter. Her middle-aged daughter, who maybe has a full-time job, she has her own memory challenges. And her kids need their memories in top form so they can remember what's going to be on the test. So memory affects the whole family, people of all ages. What most people don't realize is that we can improve our memory ability now, keep our brains young and fit, and even stave off future memory loss. That's what we'll be talking about today. In fact, before we finish today, I will show you some simple memory techniques that I guarantee will improve your memory ability immediately. You'll never have to forget a name and face again. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, is it possible? Can people really keep their brains young and healthy throughout life? And my answer to you is yes. Let me give you a couple of examples. My wife's 104-year-old grandmother, Grandma Ollie, she's lived in the Upper West Side of New York City in a two-floor walk-up apartment for the past 35 years. So she gets plenty of physical exercise walking up and down those stairs. I saw her a couple of years ago when she was only 102, and at that time she actually admitted to being 97 years old. She's also very active mentally. She's the kind of person who is always on the phone with friends and relatives, someone who you might describe as being involved in lots of people's business. You probably know people like that. So she has mental activity. She does not take estrogen. I'm sure that most of us have heard about the various controversies regarding postmenopausal estrogen replacement. In Grandma Ollie's case, she doesn't need the estrogen to protect her brain. She's alert, organized, and mentally quite sharp. Another example I heard about a few years ago of a woman who lived to be 124. And when she died, she had the brain of an 80-year-old. This woman lived in Provence, France. She ate the typical diet of the region, lots of olive oil, fish, fresh fruits and vegetables, she had an active lifestyle, physically active and mentally active, and she too had excellent mental abilities as she aged. I heard an interesting story about her that she sold her apartment when she was 94 to a businessman, and this is a typical practice in France where businessmen will pay what they call a bouquet, a cash payout for an attractive apartment and then pay the rent. Well, as it turned out, this woman outlived this businessman, so it wasn't a very good investment. So it is possible there are examples of people who live to ripe old ages and remain mentally active. How could this be so? Doesn't our genetic makeup determine how fast our brains will age? As it turns out, genetics determines only about a third of the rate of brain aging. The other two-thirds has to do with our environment. So the lifestyle choices we make can have a very important influence on how rapidly our brains will age. Our research group at UCLA has been working on this challenge for nearly two decades. We've been developing technologies to identify the first subtle evidence of brain aging 
so we know when to begin treatments. What drives our research is the idea that it will likely be easier to protect our brain cells while they are healthy instead of repairing them once they are damaged. So if we can identify early brain dysfunction or subtle brain aging, then we can identify the best candidates for preventive treatments. When scientists begin to ask the question, how early does brain aging begin? They get some very interesting answers. The study that told us a lot about this has been called the Nunn study. In this study, David Snowden looked at about a hundred nuns who were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he had access to diaries that they wrote when they were in their 20s and entered their convents. What Snowden did was to systematically analyze the language of these diaries, the complexity of language, the density of ideas in those diaries. And he found that those nuns who had more complex language, denser ideas in their 20s, were much less likely to get Alzheimer's disease 50 years later. An example of identifying subtle changes, subtle markers that might predict future brain aging. We don't always have access to people's diaries written when they were young adults. And scientists have developed technologies to try to identify this subtle evidence of brain aging. Our group at UCLA has worked extensively with one brain scanning technique called PET scanning, which stands for positron emission tomography. The PET scan allows us to actually see how our brain cells are functioning, how well they're communicating with each other. So we can see subtle evidence of neuron dysfunction before there's cell death. In a conventional brain scan, like an MRI scan or a CT scan, you can see the structure of the brain. You can't see this subtle dysfunction. These PET scans allow us to see the first subtle evidence of Alzheimer's disease, sometimes years, sometimes decades, before people actually become symptomatic. Dan Silverman and I did a study recently where we studied the brain scans of young people in their 20s and 30s and found that those who completed college actually had higher brain activity in some of the memory centers of the brain compared to those who hadn't completed college. This led us to two possible conclusions. First, the mental activity involved in gaining a college education may protect our brains. Or two, being born with good brain aging genes may predispose a person to attend college. Both explanations may hold true. In fact, I believe there's an interaction between nature and nurture that determines how quickly our brains will age. We've done other studies to identify this subtle evidence of brain aging. We've used a technology called functional MRI. Basically, we take a conventional MRI scanner and alter the procedure so that we can actually see evidence of brain cell firing while a person performs a memory test. I call this our brain stress test because it's analogous to a cardiac treadmill stress test. In the cardiac treadmill stress test, we get on the treadmill and try to stress our hearts to bring out subtle abnormalities. In the brain stress test, our volunteers will perform memory tasks 
to stress their brains to bring out subtle abnormalities during the brain scan. We found that people with relatively normal memory performance, people in their early 60s on average, will do very well with the memory task. But if they have a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, their brains have to work harder to perform the same task compared to people without that genetic risk. And in fact, the harder their brains work, the worse will be their memory several years later. When Susan Buchheimer and I performed these studies, we thought that what is probably happening is that the subject's brains are compensating for subtle deficits determined by their genetic risk. So their brains have to work harder to perform the same memory task. And what probably happens over the years is that compensatory mechanism breaks down and memory gets worse. We've also looked at these genetic risks in people who have had PET scans. And these scans are done with people during mental rest. During the brain stress test, the memory centers of the brain light up while the subject is performing a memory task. With the PET scan, we ask subjects to just remain at mental rest, and we find that those with the genetic risk have a decrease in brain activity in the memory centers of the brain. We can see these subtle decreases in people in their 40s and their 50s. In fact, when we follow these subjects over time, we find that those people who have the genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease show a more rapid decline in some of these brain areas. We've taken the PET scan and we've developed another technology that is very exciting. George Barrio, a talented chemist at UCLA, myself and several other scientists, have developed a way to actually visualize the physical evidence of Alzheimer's disease in the living patient. Traditionally, only a pathologist could make a definite diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, and they make this diagnosis after the patient dies and an autopsy is performed. Our group very recently discovered a new chemical that can be used with PET brain scans to visualize for the first time the brain decay diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease in the living patient. This discovery will eventually help physicians make an accurate diagnosis, since now they often diagnose and treat Alzheimer's disease years after the disease has progressed in the brain. We've all heard about Alzheimer's disease. It affects about 4 million people in the United States alone. As we age, our risk for getting Alzheimer's disease increases. About 10% of those 65 or older get Alzheimer's disease. By age 75, the risk goes up to about 25-30%. People with this devastating illness will literally lose their minds over time. Their memory goes, their other mental abilities like language ability will decline. Their personality will change. Eventually, they need to be cared for by others. Scientists have found that in the brain of an Alzheimer victim, there are these plaques and tangles that are the physical evidence of the disease. There's debate as to whether those plaques and tangles are causing the disease or just a marker of the disease. Regardless of the outcome of that debate, many of us are convinced that having an idea of how many plaques and tangles are in the brain will be an important way to track the disease. 
when you study young people who have died from various causes, and you look at their brains, you find that there are plaques and tangles as well. Not in as high a concentration as you see in Alzheimer's disease, but they are there in the memory centers of the brain nonetheless. So the idea has been put forward that brain aging begins relatively early in adult life. There's the accumulation of these plaques and tangles very gradually over time. And I'm convinced that if we all lived long enough and did nothing to protect our brains, we'd probably all get something like Alzheimer's disease. In fact, if you look at the rates of Alzheimer's disease each year, they tend to double after age 65 every five years. If the trend continued by 110, if we all lived to be 110 years of age, we'd probably all get Alzheimer's disease. Now that's if we did nothing about it, because we know that genetics is not the whole story, that there are lifestyle choices, that there are environmental influences, so we have more control than we think about slowing down brain aging and even staving off Alzheimer's disease. When a pathologist looks at a slice of brain tissue under the microscope and stains the tissue with the right kind of stain, they'll see plaques and tangles in high concentrations in the various memory centers of the brain. There's a temporal region beneath the temples. There's a parietal region up and behind that and also in the frontal part of the brain, what's called the frontal lobe. The plaque actually has a central core of insoluble protein called amyloid beta. And around that central core are elements of inflammation, cells that are thought to be working to clear the insoluble protein out of the brain. Because of the configuration of the plaque, many people have theorize that anti-inflammatory drugs may actually protect people from getting Alzheimer's disease. The idea is that if we could suppress that inflammatory response to the accumulation of the protein, that that would protect the brain cells. Of course, this is just theory. It hasn't been proven. But there have been some interesting studies on anti-inflammatory drugs. A few years ago in Baltimore, Scientists looked at a large group of older adults living in the community. They found that those who reported taking anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen or Motrin for two or more years, those people had a 60% reduction in their risk for getting Alzheimer's disease.